It's important to continue to remember that deception is bad, and these tools make it easier to lie. Deepfakes are the fear that comes to mind for most people. A lot of people are thinking about and are worried about manipulated video and audio. Um, but we also can see the consequences of that going in the other direction. Bad actors also have the opportunity to use generative AI as a scapegoat. So I think that there is a large ethical risk here around intentional harm and intentional deception. Welcome back to Politics is Everything, where we are digging into what happens when you poke a bear. I'm Kara Ongwaley. I'm Kyle Kondik. On Tuesday, October 3rd, the House of Representatives voted 216 to 210 to remove California Republican Kevin McCarthy from his position uh, as Speaker of the House. Uh, this was an historic move that comes just days after he had reached an 11th hour, 12th hour, really, deal to avert a government shutdown. Um, and that came, of course, with the help of House Democrats. The vote to the vote to vacate the House speakership is unprecedented. Those of us who study uh, the state of democracy think that you know it could be yet another warning sign for the state of our political institutions. Representative Patrick McHenry is now acting speaker um, and called for a recess to figure out what to do. While there's no precedent for knowing, Kyle, can you lay out what might happen next? Uh, well, look, the uh, you know the first order of business for the House um, whenever it convenes and it doesn't have a speaker is to elect a speaker, and that's why you know when there was the 15 rounds of voting before McCarthy won in January, it was actually sort of technically the case. I didn't even I, I didn't even realize this until it was going on, but that the representatives elect were not even actually representatives because you basically need a speaker first, and then the people get sworn in. Now. They are representatives now because they've already been sworn in for this, you know, for their for their two year term. Um, but it, and there's actually some some real kind of inside baseball stuff about um, what power McHenry actually has as sort of this acting speaker. Um, but first of all, there has to be a new speaker. I think that's that's pretty widely understood. And so um, the Republicans are going to try to get their ducks in a row over the course of this this next week. It sounds like there's going to be a speaker vote. Um, middle of uh, middle of next week, and you know the the leading contenders seem to be Steve Scalise, the the current majority leader, and then um, Jim Jordan, uh, chair of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, you know there there are some other people who might be possibilities, but they sort of stand out as we're talking now. Um, and uh, you know the thing is, is that th this is why it's so tricky, and this ultimately led to McCarthy's undoing. Is that on one hand, you know, becoming the speaker is sort of you know the the the, the party. Um, the party caucuses get together, determine who their leadership is going to be. And that's just like a, you know, an internal uh, uh, caucus vote. But then that person basically, because the Republicans majority is so small, um, that person has to get nearly unanimous support from Republicans on the floor. And, you know, McCarthy did not have that kind of unanimous support. And that's why it took only a handful of, of Republicans who then ended up being, you know, basically supported by Democrats to, uh, to get rid of him. And whoever is going to be speaker now is going to need that unanimous support. You know, my guess is that there's going to be kind of a honeymoon period and a, and a grace period for whoever the next speaker is going to be. And so I'm sort of thinking that the party, at least in the short term, will kind of rally behind that person. But they also may end up having a short shelf life, just like, um, j just like, just like McCarthy did. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, 
I guess to me, it maybe says a little bit less about our institutions than just like where the GOP is right now, because they just don't have, um, they just don't have the sort of unity that I think you need within a, within a party caucus to effectively govern the house when you have such a small majority. To me, that was one of the key points. There's just such a narrow majority in the house on the one hand, and then on the other, you have factionalism within the Republican party. And I just, you know, it, is it possible to really be able to to govern under those conditions? Well, and, and, you know, there are um, there are certain things that basically have to be done in terms of the budget. And, you know, I mean, there's there's another shutdown threat looming in November. Um, we just had this shutdown threat that got resolved over the weekend. But of course, um, then Speaker McCarthy needed Democratic votes to, uh, you know, basically to keep keep the keep the government open. And, um, you know, whoever the next speaker is, is probably also going to find themselves in a bind in that regard. And if they try to, uh, you know, if they try to uh, uh, get Democratic support for something, then they may end up facing, you know, being deposed themselves. So it's just this it's just a strange situation. You know, again, the Democrats had a similarly small majority uh, the, in the last Congress. But the difference is, is that the people that you would consider to be kind of the most sort of like ideological fringe members of the Democratic caucus, you know, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or, or, or Cori Bush or Rashida Tlaib, et cetera, a few, a few others, you know, they decided that they were going to basically play ball and support Nancy Pelosi as the then speaker. Um, you know, they could have tried to pull this sort of thing themselves and, and put Pelosi in a bind, but, but they just decided not to do that. Um, whereas like Matt Gates on the Republican side has, has been comfortable doing that and, and he has some um, some allies of his own. So uh, it just speaks, I think, again, I think to a, to a difference in terms of cohesion between the two parties. And look, I mean, we're, you know, I think you look at sort of the House landscape for the 2024 election, race for the majority is up for grabs. You could see a, you know, a third consecutive House that has another tiny majority. And, you know, particularly if the Republicans remain in control, these sort of fissures and this um, instability in terms of the top leadership may very well continue. So this week you write about how the 2024 election might be historic and that we could have a pair of presidential candidates who sweep their party nominating contests, even in spite of their weaknesses and liabilities. Can you just give us a, a brief historical overview of why this hasn't happened in the past and what we might see in 2024? So yeah, it is, it is kind of crazy to think about, and, and that's why I wrote the piece, just because I didn't quite realize this until I was thinking about it uh, last week, was that, you know, look, you've got both Biden and Trump, their, their overall national favorability is, is fairly low. They're both at like 40%, unfavorability, you know, over around 55% for both of them. And, uh, you know, but at, at the same time, in, you know, within their own parties, they seem to both have sort of a a hammerlock on their, you know, nominations. I mean, both, you know, Biden really has very little real opposition within his own party, despite polls that show some some real weakness, or at least some some you know Democrats who don't want him to run again. And you know, Donald Trump too. Um, you know, he does have credible opposition within his own party, but all the polling suggests that he's leading by a lot nationally and leading by a lot in in the key early states. You know, that of course could change, but the numbers have been fairly steady for months now. Um, and uh, you know, throughout. Throughout modern nominating history, which goes back to the early 70s, that's when sort of the primary process got more democratized and um, the, the primary contests in particular started becoming more important in terms of selecting delegates. You've never had a situation where both major party candidates won every single nominating contest. And I'm not necessarily saying that's going to happen this time, 
but it does seem like a live possibility, which again seems a little odd given um, some of the some of the clear weaknesses of of these two front running candidates. And you know, one particularity here, and that might help explain what's going on, is that you know usually in a and, and it's technically true in this election too is that usually you only have one incumbent uh, or at most one incumbent running. Uh, for renomination, and so one side is, has an open nom- nominating contest. You know, this time Biden is an actual incumbent, and Trump is aiming for a third straight GOP nomination as the former president. And so he's not an incumbent, but he's a quasi incumbent. And so this is about the closest you're going to get to having two incumbents running. And I think you probably see that incumbent strength in um, the, the the position that both of them hold in their um, respective nominating contests. Uh, one thing that jumped out at me is that actually there's one state that could potentially be problematic for both of them, and that is New Hampshire. And I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah, New Hampshire has served a role in the past as sort of like putting a little bit of a damper on a on a uh, you know on, on a sort of a runaway nomination. Um, you know, a good example of this, or a couple examples that that are cited in the piece is you know George W. Bush was was a you know was a huge favorite in 2000. He won Iowa, and then he ended up losing New Hampshire to John McCain. Uh, Bush righted the ship. He ended up, you know, beating McCain in South Carolina, and what became a very nasty election in that state. Um, and then Bush ended up winning all but a handful of the nominating contests that year. Uh, eight years later, you know, Barack Obama beat Hillary Clinton in Iowa. Uh, Clinton then had this comeback and won New Hampshire, and then that set up this sort of um, uh, back and forth race that Obama was generally leading and, and had a delegate edge in. Um, in part because of it seemed like his team sort of understood the rules better and 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 was able to sort of outfox the Clinton team in some of the the key like caucus states as opposed to the primaries. Um, there were some other factors that year, but uh, but you know New Hampshire helped save uh, Hillary Clinton in t- 2008, at least allowing her to continue on in, in what became a sort of a historic and 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 a, 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 and, a and a long race. Um, and I kind of wonder if that could happen to Trump. Maybe, you know, maybe Trump actually wins Iowa where, where a lot of people seem to think he might have weakness, even though polls don't show that. Um, but maybe the, the voters in New Hampshire, particularly because, um, it's, it's very easy. It's an, it's an open primary system. So it's easy to, you know, for Democrats to vote in the Republican primary if they want to. Um, and so maybe you see sort of an upset in New Hampshire. And then for Biden, he may not actually be on the ballot in New Hampshire because it looks like New Hampshire is going to vote earlier than it's, sort of slotted position based on what the Democrats want the nominating rules to be in 2024. Uh, and so then Biden might have to win as like a write-in candidate, or there'd be sort of this this sort of informal uh, campaign for Biden to win as a write-in. Uh, and, you know, he probably would be able to do that given the weakness of his opposition. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. looks like isn't even going to be running in the Democratic side anymore. Um, looks like he's, he's probably going to run into, as an independent. Um, but that's that's one thing to watch is just that New Hampshire has just become the sort of messy, strange situation for the Democrats based on their desire to um, to basically downgrade New Hampshire um, from its first in the nation primary status, at least on the Democratic side. Quick sidebar on uh, Kennedy running as an independent. It seems like he would actually pull more from uh, Trump supporters than he would from Democrats if he runs as an independent. Uh, what, what is, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that that that's that's a live possibility. I mean, as we've seen throughout the nominating season, uh, Kennedy's numbers are better amongst Republicans than they are amongst Democrats. Now, at the end of the day, what you'd expect is probably Kennedy would not get that much in terms of overall support. And you know, it, 
you know, maybe maybe his his uh, his support ends up, you know, eventually coming more from Democrats than Republicans. Uh, but, um, you know, there there is some possibility there because, again, he's someone who has basically done a better job of cultivating the right than the left, even though he's he, he is currently but probably won't be for very long running in the Democratic Party um, primary. You know, one other little aside I wanted to mention here that, that I didn't mention in the piece. So what when Lyndon Johnson decided not to run for reelection in 1968, part of the reason he didn't do that was he had some clear weakness within his own party, um, as exposed by the New Hampshire primary that year. Um, and so Johnson won the New Hampshire primary, but he only got it was like 50 to 41 or something over uh, Eugene McCarthy. But interestingly, LBJ was a write-in candidate. So he actually got, you know, he won the primary as a write-in candidate, much the same way that Biden might. And so one thing I'm sort of looking at is, and I'm curious about is, you know, does does Biden sweep the primary season, but is he consistently, you know, bleeding votes to protest candidates? Um, and that could be in and of itself a sign of weakness. You know, that's something we saw too with George H.W. Bush in, uh, two, in, in 1992, he won all the contests that year, but he was bleeding votes to Pat Buchanan, um, who was running. I think Buchanan, in some ways, is sort of like a like a, a, a proto Trump figure in terms of his kind of populist kind of America first uh, conservatism. But Buchanan got almost forty percent in New Hampshire, and he was routinely getting um, you know some share of the vote uh, in in you know primaries across the country. So it's possible that like Biden could sweep, but. Maybe he does so in, in a way in which he's consistently losing 15, 20, 25 percent of the vote to other candidates. And maybe that's like a soft sign for him for the for, you know, if you're looking for breadcrumbs for the general election. So just something to keep in mind. Well, we will continue to follow this. Thank you so much for your excellent analysis, as always. Thanks, Kara. Listeners, you can read Kyle's new analysis about the possibility of a Biden-Trump sweep at the link in the episode notes. And coming up next, we talk with Matt Hodges, executive director of Zinc Labs, who worked on the technology infrastructure for the Clinton campaign in 2016 and as engineering director for the Biden 2020 campaign. He joins us to talk about the evolution of technology in political campaigns and whether generative artificial intelligence will let politicians get away with lying. Stay with us. And we are back with Matt Hodges, Executive Director of Zinc Labs. I'm Kara. I'm Ella Nelson, a third year at UVA. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I wonder if you can start by sharing how you came to work in campaigns and elections. Yeah, sure. So um, my first uh, jump into the political space as a technologist was in 2015. Um, I joined an organization called The Groundwork, which ended up building the primary technology platform that was deployed by the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, in the 2016 election. Um, we worked very closely with the Clinton campaign and their entire tech team throughout that cycle. Uh, I was a software engineer on that team. Um, going into the 2020 cycle, I came back into the political space as the uh, director of engineering for the Joe Biden campaign. I joined the Biden campaign um, in the summer of 2019, so I was there through the entire primary uh, and general election cycle. Um, and now I'm here at uh, Zinc Collective in my role as the executive director of Zinc Labs, um, which is one of our centers for innovation where we focus on technology and talent within the Democratic Party. Uh, we collaborate with campaigns, committees, 
vendors and other electoral organizations to build and deploy modern tech tools, tactics, and highly skilled staff. As you just mentioned, you worked for the Clinton campaign in 2015 and 2016 and as the engineering director for the Biden 2020 campaign. So can you talk a little bit about how the role of technology has evolved between those two campaigns and over the past few years? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, To give a little bit of a history there, I I actually consider most modern um, political tech strategies on the Democratic side really originating all the way back in 2004 with the Howard Dean campaign. Um, 2004 was when we started seeing some center of gravity forming around the presidential campaigns, building and deploying um, um, more sophisticated and robust technical operations. That continued into the Obama 2008 campaign. We started hearing words like new media a lot in 2008. Um, We don't call that new media anymore. It's digital organizing or just organizing now. Um, But back in 2008, that was the terminology that was being used. Um, In 2012 was really the explosion of a robust um, tech and analytics operation within a presidential. And this was the continuation of that idea that the center of gravity on the Democratic side was the presidential campaigns. You may have heard about um, the cave from 2012. It was this windowless room at uh, the Obama headquarters where their tech and data teams uh, were were building out these models and these tech tools. Uh, One of the biggest tech tools was called uh, Narwhal at the time, which was their their, uh, voter-facing and internal-facing tool chain uh, for organizing. Fast forward to 2016. 2016 was basically a a natural continuation of that robust uh, tech and analytics operation for 2012. Uh, The Clinton campaign in 2016 had a large in-house tech team with a significant amount of product being built. Um, After 2016, though, is when things started to change. Um, When Donald Trump won, there was this groundswell of technologists looking for a way to contribute on the Democratic side. And from 2017 to 2019, we saw this massive emergence of tools and startups, and technical nonprofits enter into the scene. Uh, there was a bit of reactive investment by the party committees um, uh, as a reaction to some of the data breaches that happened in 2016. And so in the space between the 2016 election and the 2020 election, that center of gravity became much more distributed. It uh, started uh, moving to vendors to committees, and to um, more campaigns. So when we got to 2020, um, really 2019, we actually had to build a lot less in-house on the Biden campaign um, than they did in 2016 because of this newly flourishing ecosystem. Um, We were able to leverage a lot of technical partners. Um, Some of that was the committee, such as the DNC. Some of it was vendors. And then some of it was still being built in-house. Going into 2024, that's only going to continue. Even less is going to be required to be built by the Biden reelect campaign. Um, they're going to have uh, a lot more options across the ecosystem by tech building organizations. And so I think that center of gravity that we saw at presidentials through the Obama and Clinton and a little bit in the Biden uh, 2020 campaign is going to be much more distributed um, and reliant on more players. You are now on the advisory board of Quiller and Higher Grounds Labs, both of which in different capacities support tech and talent in electoral politics. Can you talk about how generative AI tools are being used by candidates and elected officials? 
Um, it's important to acknowledge that AI tools are still very much in their infancy. And while the tools themselves are evolving at a rapid pace, uh, so are the strategies to use them. Um, a big part of the work that I do in these advisory roles for both Quiller and Higher Ground Labs is, uh, is, is to help both the users and the builders align on a few uh, key points. Um, the first there is knowledge alignment. Um, what is AI technology in 2023 and 2024? How does it work? What can it do? Um, and equally important, uh, what can it not do? Uh, the next is mission alignment. What, what do we want to actually accomplish? Uh, one of the unofficial catchphrases of, of democratic politics is that we meet people where they are. Um, how do these tools help us meet people where they are? What are their goals? around what, what, what are the other goals around organizing and voting and persuasion and turnout that these tools can contribute to? Um, and then we transition the answers to those questions into things like problem scoping and solution scoping. Given our understanding of what generative AI is capable of and equally important what it is not capable of, what problems can this help us solve? And then what solutions can we uh, deploy to solve those problems? What tools need to be built uh, what programs need to be run? How do we train our staff and our people to use them? And so candidates and campaigns and elected officials, vendors, other electoral organizations are still answering a lot of those questions. Um, but, the, but the big piece of advice that I have for them at this stage is to continue to orient what they're building and what they're deploying in service of answering those questions. Um, the theory of the case for Quillers to empower uh, resource-constrained organizations uh, with their email outreach, particularly around down-ballot campaigns. Um, some campaigns, the candidate themselves is the one who sits down and writes the email that goes out to their supporters. And uh, a blank composer window can be pretty daunting when you're trying to write an email to uh, 100,000 people. Um, Quiller, Quiller gives these campaigns um, a first draft for their outreach based on a very simple form to capture themes and tones and subject matter they want to include in that outreach. And ultimately, efficiency is the name of the game. All, all of the campaigns are understaffed and overworked. Um, these tools are not meant to replace anyone on staff because everyone on staff is already doing multiple jobs. These tools are designed to make the people who are coming to work on these campaigns more efficient and better at their jobs. If Quiller can give staff even 5% of their time back, that's a massive win for anyone who's working on that campaign. Um, but Quiller is still very much in development. It's still very much in, uh, it's still very much reacting to the needs of campaigns and other users. Um, other uh, startups that are moving through Higher Ground Labs are also very early in this discovery phase and deploying solutions. But we're starting to see some, some interesting tactics around data analysis, some smarter social sharing tools. Graphic design has a pretty uh, obvious use case for generative AI. And we're starting to see some things around message testing. Um, there's a lot of promise in a lot of these tools, but uh, it's worth uh, keeping in mind that some of them will work really well and others won't. So a big part of what I'm hoping to work with these uh, vendors and companies on is answering those questions of what are the problems that they can solve and then uh, getting them in the hands of the users to prove whether or not that moves the needle. Matt, I wonder if you can also talk about the ethical considerations for candidates, government officials, and others as they use and deploy AI and other technology. 
what kinds of things would you include in an ethical framework? Yeah, I think that it's important to acknowledge that with or without generative AI, our ethics ultimately don't change. And um, it's important to continue to remember that deception is bad. And these tools make it easier to lie. Deepfakes are the fear that comes to mind for most people. A lot of people are thinking about and are worried about manipulated video and audio. Um, but we also can see the consequences of that going in the other direction. Bad actors also have the opportunity to use generative AI as a scapegoat. Uh, just this year, um, Elon Musk's lawyers said that his own words couldn't be held against him because you couldn't prove that they weren't AI generated. And it's not hard to imagine a world where things like the Access Hollywood tape from 2016 or the recording of Mitt Romney from 2012, where he said 47% of voters are freeloaders, are called into doubt because the water has been muddied. So I think that there is a large ethical risk here around intentional harm and intentional deception. Um, but when campaigns and other electoral organizations are thinking about using these tools ethically, one of the most important things that they can do is keep a human in the loop. And that will help them avoid making the, the error of unintentional harm. We're ultimately responsible for the outputs of these tools. And if these tools hallucinate or lie or emit violent or hateful language, it's our fault. It's not the tool's fault. And uh, I think there's a lot of energy around things like chatbots. I've heard campaigns raise the idea of putting a chatbot on their website to give voters information about uh, issues, but also to give them information about registering to vote or casting a ballot. And there's a risk there where the chatbot gives a voter incorrect information and then they can't reliably cast their ballot. Um, and so I think it's very important not to relegate voters to speaking to the machine. Again, one of the democratic catchphrases is meet voters where they are. And if we relegate a voter to not even talking to our teams, I think that would be a pretty uh, significant failure of that goal. Um, I also think about how these tools can affect uh, staff. Again, staff are overworked and um, are trying to accomplish a lot in a very short amount of time. And these tools will make them quicker and more efficient at their job. But it, again, poses the risk of um, giving them incorrect information, potentially embarrassing themselves or the campaign or the candidate. Um, just this year, there was a, a story of a lawyer who filed a bogus filed bogus case law that Chat GPT made up, and it was a pretty uh, embarrassing moment for that lawyer. And it uh, created a pr created a case study articulating that these tools can fool smart people. Lawyers are very smart people, and as these tools become more mainstream and baked into our everyday workflows, whether it's Google Docs or Microsoft Word or Adobe Photoshop, anything that we're using that incorporates generative AI, we need our staff to be educated on the risks that these tools uh, pose and equipped to mitigate them. Uh, one of the best solutions that I think we have right now on equipping our staff is to just get them using the tools. There's a lot of staff in the political space that haven't used things like ChatGPT or Dolly or, 
or the Bing chat or Bard or anything like that, because there's a little bit of apprehension around the security and safety of them, which is completely warranted. But it's also important that folks start getting a hands, hands-on experience with what these tools can do so that they will be better equipped to fact-check them, to understand that the information needs to be verified, to understand that the images uh, can be easily manipulated and anything else like that. You mentioned previously how AI tools could benefit campaigns and elected officials down ballot, especially because they have limited resources and staffs are often stretched too thin. But we also want to ask what concerns you might have about how the use of such tools might further exacerbate the ill effects that we've seen from the nationalization of politics and hyperpartisanship. The point about nationalization of politics and hyperpartisanship is really interesting. And it's a risk that probably warrants more exploration. Generative AI tools can only create content based on the data that they've seen. Um, the same is true for classification machine learning models. If the training data is largely representative of national politics discourse and content, then that's what they're going to emit. Um, and this does pose an interesting challenge for a lot of the campaigns across the country because down-ballot campaigns are trying to speak to local voters about local issues. Um, and it's entirely possible that some of these tools may struggle to capture the context and language and norms of local communities because the models don't know enough about them. Um, there's been early research to suggest tools like ChatGPT sound a lot like college-educated white Americans. Um, and this is a manifestation of bias in the system um, now, it's not impossible for generative AI tools to be trained or fine-tuned on something more local, something more relevant to a down-ballot campaign, but uh, that is an expensive and time-consuming and challenging task. And whether or not that happens is going to be a function of, do the people and organizations building these tools think that there is a market for it? I think that there's a, there's a pretty significant risk because of how many uh, localities that run elections every year, uh, that it seems pretty unlikely to me that there's going to be uh, tools bespoke for every local candidate. So I think that there is a real risk here of tools emitting content, whether it's imagery or language or text, that sounds more along the lines of national politics and continues to follow the talking points of some of the polarization that we see at the national level. And I'm not convinced that there's an obvious answer here. I think that the best thing to do at this phase is to use these tools and understand and measure what they are producing so that as down-ballot candidates are assessing whether or not it fits into their tool chain, they have a good sense of what they can expect. Um, unfortunately for voters, uh, they're going to be uh, at the receiving end. So this is really a decision point for candidates and uh, local, uh, local party organizations to evaluate. There are, of course, many concerns with the ways in which generative AI especially can be used to amplify and spread misinformation, malinformation, disinformation, and propaganda. And you already spoke about deep fakes earlier in our conversation. Um, you know, we're also concerned about other means like rumor bombing, uh, the scale and volume of text and email campaigns that AI enables. 
How should lawmakers be thinking about safeguards for generative artificial intelligence, especially for elections, that might foster innovation and progress, but also prevent some of the nightmare scenarios from becoming real? It's funny to be talking about this today, less than 24 hours after the uh, Republican House of Representatives ejected the speaker for the first time in U.S. history. Um, I have today zero confidence that the current legislature can do anything around this very complicated issue. That being said, I think that there are regulations that can move forward. We see the Biden White House, the FTC, the FCC, the FEC are all working on executive branch uh, responses to these tools. We see Senate Majority Leader Schumer is engaging this issue pretty robustly. Um, And when we talk about AI regulation, it's fairly common to see calls for things like companies disclosing the data sources that they've trained on, I think that's very smart and can better our understanding of these systems. Um, But that's going to be limited to the people who are equipped to do that kind of analysis. We also see attempts to try to enumerate all the bad things that could and should be banned from doing with AI. I think that that has value as well. Um, And there's some pretty obvious low-hanging fruit of things that I think we should ban with AI. Um, But it only gets us so far. I'm much more increasingly bought into this notion that protections for the majority of people would more effectively come in the form of regulating the commerce of AI. Um, Over time, the way these things are built and used is going to gravitate towards what makes the most money. And I think that there's a strong argument that the past decade's discourse around social media and surveillance advertising was actually a conversation about business models. And I suspect that if laws and regulation turn their focus towards the business models that enable bad behaviors, they're much more effective at limiting the bad behaviors of both the companies that are building these tools and the users that um, have access to them. And so how how does this come back to elections? Ultimately, campaigns are short-term marketing startups, and they're run by real people. And if we ultimately decide that things like deep fakes are the biggest AI-driven threat to elections and society as a whole, then it probably makes more sense to regulate the creation and sale of deep fake tools. Um, there are still open source options out there and people who are determined can get their hands on things. Right now, the scalability of the threat comes from the accessibility of it. And if we're thinking about regulation, I think we need to focus on the people who are making these tools and con, uh, constraining what they're putting out there for the general public to purchase and deploy. So you just talked about what government and legislatures can do to prevent these nightmare scenarios, but can you talk a little bit about what tech companies themselves can do to minimize and ideally eliminate harm while also helping improve social and economic conditions? So this question and critique of the tech industry is about as old as the tech industry itself. Um, And I I won't pretend to know the silver bullet because it is a dauntingly complex problem. Um, But one very tactical action that tech companies and builders of AI tools can take is to diversify their workforce and their leadership. The people building these tools and deploying on top of them need to have strong representation from a huge spectrum of backgrounds. 
generative AI is ultimately a bias automation machine. And if you have a homogenous team deploying these tools, you're guaranteed to be blind to the bias and the harms of their outputs. Um, this has been the case in, tech, in the tech industry for quite some time. Um, right now, we're at a very interesting moment where there's a loud chorus of very diverse, intelligent people who are speaking about the risks and harms of these tools right now. And some of them are getting the attention that they deserve, and, but many of them are not. And I think that if the tech industry is invested in minimizing harm, um, bringing those diverse voices into the decision-making process is going to do much more than any sort of self-regulation um, that they might be proposing right now. Uh, when these technologies hurt people, there needs to be accountability. And uh, without accountability, there's no incentive to work to guard against them. So a combination of that diverse body of input, as well as a mechanism for accountability, is probably the only path we have forward on minimizing and eliminating harm. Um, I think that accountability is very unlikely to come within the tech industry. I think that needs to come from government in some form. But from within, making sure that they are representative of a variety of voices and a variety of backgrounds so that they don't inadvertently deploy something harmful or toxic without seeing the toxicity that it can produce. Matt Hodges, Executive Director of Zinc Labs. We are really fortunate and grateful for your time and insights into the role of technology broadly in campaigns and elections, but specifically the role that artificial intelligence might play. Great, thank you. Listeners, you can find a link to Matt Hodges' website as well as to the Zinc Collective in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whitley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.